Welcome to Be the CEO of Your Life and Business podcast with your hosts, Laura Katina and Amy Mara. This podcast was created for businesswomen in particular who are juggling pursuing their career, family life, and all of the things that come along with it. We know that building a career, running a business, and running your life can sometimes seem near impossible. In the Be the CEO of Your Life and Business podcast, Laura and Amy are going to share their experience of building their own careers as female attorneys, raising a family, and their journey to maintain wellness through it all. With more than 25 years of combined experience practicing law and years of juggling business, family, and wellness, they are about to have some very real and honest discussions about what it takes to manage it all and share tips, tools, and truth about how they make it all work. Welcome back to the Be the CEO of Your Life and Business podcast. Today, it's just me. Amy's not with us today, but we have uh, some special guests today that I'm excited to talk with. I've been wanting to have them on for quite a bit. Um, the founding partners of Cohen, Cohen Kramer Law. And I thought it'd be good to bring them on because we have you know, a lot of our audience is business owners and employers, and their law firm practices employment law. And specifically, what I want to talk about today is best practices and what is involved in employment uh, investigations and things that are particular to employers, um, which I think they will have some information for you today that is really helpful. Um, so first, I want to start out by having them introduce themselves. Uh, Deb Cohen, if you could go first. Hi. Uh, thank you, Laura. I'm happy to be here with you today. So I'm with the firm uh, Cohen Kramer Law, and we're an employment law firm that provides advice and counseling to employers of all sizes. We also conduct workplace investigations and develop policies and procedures for companies and conduct workplace trainings um, ranging from sexual harassment, training and prevention, to American with Disability Act disability kinds of issues, um, a whole gamut, hiring and firing issues. And so we do provide that workplace training. And I've been in practice for, for about 29 years, providing labor and employment services to, to uh, on, on the management side. Andrea? <laughs> Hi, everyone. And thank you, Laura, for having us on today. We're excited to chat with you about workplace investigations. I am Deb's partner at Cohen Kramer Law and also an employment law attorney and, and conduct workplace investigations and workplace trainings and develop policies for employers. And really, you know, our focus as a firm is to provide proactive solutions to employers um, so their businesses and their employees can thrive. And so we're really excited to be here today and to talk about, you know, one of our favorite topics, which is best practices for workplace investigations. So we have two attorneys here today who have a wealth of experience and information in this area. Um, so I'm so excited to dive into this. I think a lot of business owners, when you mention, you know, obviously a lot of businesses have to deal with sexual harassment claims, um, discrimination issues, you know, various claims that an employee will raise. But when you mention an investigation or an outside investigation to a business owner, they're like, why would I need that? <laughs> so um, maybe if one of you could talk, you know, briefly about what is an investigation? 
Yeah, sure. And, and, you know, Laura, the last time you and I had discussed workplace investigations, we talked a lot about when to use uh, an outside investigator. And as you know, from that discussion, employers have an obligation when faced with a complaint of harassment, discrimination, or other workplace misconduct to conduct a prompt, thorough, and impartial investigation. Um, so that complaint is really where everything begins. And it's really important for employers and for employees for the business to have a policy in place and a lot of states have a model policy Massachusetts has a model sexual harassment policy for example I believe New York has one in place as well and that's a really good place to start in Massachusetts it's geared more towards sexual harassment so we always recommend making that policy broader to encompass all types of unlawful harassment and discrimination. And that policy really serves as a roadmap for the employer and for the employee when there is a complaint of harassment, discrimination, or other workplace misconduct and lays out, you know, that once that report is made, that an investigation will occur and that the investigation will be prompt, thorough, and impartial. And so, you know, that's really the starting point with everything. What would a circumstance be where you would have like an in-house investigation versus using an outside investigator? That's an excellent question. Um, when I first started practicing labor and employment law, it was most common for internal um, HR professionals to be conducting their own internal workplace investigations. And attorneys really served an advisory role but through the years, it's become more and more evident that there are some circumstances when it is best for an outside impartial investigator to be conducting the investigation. You see it and you hear it in the news all the time um, when there's a report of sexual harassment in an in industry. Um, you hear more and more that oh, they hired an independent outside investigator. And the reason, there's many reasons why that is becoming more the norm. I think, for one, it's very difficult for HR professionals who are already very busy with the typical day-to-day -day HR functions to be conducting these investigations on top of everything else that they must do. Um, also, it really requires very um, particular training on how to question witnesses um, and how to come up with an investigative report and analyze that report. But also, in many instances, one reason an HR person might decide not to perform their own internal investigation is if there are people in the organization that are at a higher level than themselves that are implicated or might be witnesses in that investigation. And, you know, there's really four reasons why an HR person may decide not to conduct an investigation when they're higher ups involved. And, and one is simply that they may decide that they cannot interview that superior and not question them at all because of their authority, um, that it wouldn't be appropriate for them to do so. And right there, they really shouldn't be conducting the investigation because if you don't interview that person, then it's just not going to be a thorough and complete investigation. I mean, a second thing is that if they do decide to invest uh, to question that superior they may not really ask probing questions and again for the same reason that they feel that they can't they don't have the authority to do so and then again it won't be a thorough and complete investigation at that point um, third if they do ask probing 
questions of that superior. They may feel, and, that, and they find that there, there has been some kind of workplace violation or misconduct on the part of that superior. They may feel that they cannot make that conclusion in their investigative report because it would affect their own job. There may be retaliation, there may be job implications for them. And so that, that, won't, be an impar that won't be an impartial finding at that point. And then finally, if they find that that superior really wasn't involved or really did not commit misconduct, and that may be true, if it would ever go to a jury, the jury may think that's just not a credible investigation and that they won't really take that conclusion seriously. So there's many problems when, when investigation involves a superior and they may decide to use an outside person at that point. Other um, you know, situations where you may want to use an outside person as if there are systemic issues, you know, because there might need to be, you know, broader policy changes or training recommended if that's the case, because it's a much, much larger issue than an isolated incident, or if there's bias involved on the part of the investigator. And so really identifying the, the right investigator, whether it's someone external or it's someone internal who has the knowledge, experience, and the resources to conduct it is that next step after the complaint is made. And then, you know, from there, the employer has to take prompt action. And there's, there's no set time frame with respect to what's prompt. Um, the case law, like lots of case law, <laughs> you know, talks about the different circumstances presented in any given case. But the key is really to start acting once you receive that complaint and to, look, to figure out who the investigator is going to be, whether it's someone outside or, or inside the company, and then start the investigation. You know, start those, wit those witness interviews and the interviews of the parties involved. And would the analysis be the same, I guess, for say it's a small business, a smaller business that only has like a few employees and one employee raises a sexual harassment claim and they don't have a real formal HR department. What would you look at there? Yeah, I mean, really, it's, it's the same issues, but there the focus may be more on the knowledge, experience, and the resources. They may not even have to get to the, you know, the question of whether it involves a higher level employee or whether it's a systemic problem or whether there's bias because the people who, you know, because it's a small HR department, they may not have the time, you know, to really conduct all of the necessary interviews and review the documents because it really, it is a time consuming process. You have to interview the complainant, the person making the report of the misconduct. You have to interview um, the person who is alleged to have committed the misconduct. And then you have to interview all of the witnesses who may have relevant information. And sometimes, you know, you think when you're first presented with a complaint that there's just one or two witnesses, but then when you start talking to these witnesses, you find out that there, there's more people involved. So, and then there's also documents. And I mean, documents could include um, policies that are applicable, emails, uh, notes, all sorts of things, like anything documentary that is relevant to the complaint, you know, sometimes text messages, uh, photographs. And so there's a lot that needs to be done to ensure that it's a thorough investigation. And so sometimes a small business doesn't have the resources to do that. So they may have to hire somebody outside, whether that's an attorney um, or a um, private investigator authorized to conduct the investigation in their state. And going back to, because you just mentioned, you know, one of the documents to look at would be the policy. Mm -hmm. So I've had, you know, small business owners say to me before, what, I have a small business. What do I need? What do I need a handbook for? What do I need written policies for? What would you say to that small business owner that says, what do I need written policies for? <laughs> 
So yeah, you, it's true. You, you don't have to have a handbook. Um, there are also a lot of policies that maybe you don't need, but having a harassment discrimination prevention policy is one that every business really should have. Um, it's you know required in some states, it's highly recommended in others. And regardless, it really does serve as a roadmap when presented with these issues. It tells the employer, the HR person, you know, who's handling it or the business owner, what needs to be done. And it also um, provides expectations for the employees so that, you know, they've seen this policy before, you know, an issue occurs, they know it's there, they know who to report to, um, and, and that there will be an investigation. Um, and it, it sort of takes from that perspective, it takes away that element of surprise a little bit when an employee comes to the employer and tells them, you know, that something has occurred, you know, there's some expectation that there will be some follow-up and, and it really does serve as a guide. And, and I think that that's something that's invaluable to both employers and employees in that situation. And, and also adding to that, more and more laws are being written in such a way that they are requiring written notice or policies to employees. So there really are a number of laws out there that do require notice to employees. Um, and the best way to, to provide some of that notice is, is through a written policy and a handbook. Um, but besides having se a sexual harassment or discrimination prevention policy, it's also a really good idea to have some kind of a rule of conduct policy. Because although you might find in an investigation that an employee may not have committed some violation of the sexual harassment and discrimination policy. They may have violated some other policy in their handbook, like a rule of conduct policy. Maybe their behavior was inappropriate under that policy or disrespectful in some way. So it is a good idea to have, at the very least, a rule of conduct policy that employers can point to as a reason why they're taking disciplinary action against an employee and to justify their actions against that employee. This thought just popped into my head. I just want to ask this question because I just thought about it. Are you <laughs> seeing policies being drafted differently now in the post-COVID era when you have so many people working from home, working in remote places? So sexual harassment, it may not actually happen in the workplace, in the traditional like office setting. So are you seeing policies or even drafting policies differently now that we're in just a different time? Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's a consideration with so many policies in place. And, you know, with respect to harassment and discrimination, when we do trainings, we actually, we do a, an entire uh, module on what is the workplace because now you know that's that's evolving and it has been for some time but it's even more so now with all of the virtual work and then there's also different issues coming up during investigations you know it's not always you know something that occurred in the office it could be something that occurred over a zoom call or a zoom meeting or over email or text message so absolutely it's something that's it's been changing for a while i think with more and more remote work but now that there's even more people um, working from home because of covid it's evolving even even more quickly yeah, I agree. And then I also find that policies that I've been writing in the same way for years, I am adapting with that in mind, that there are people working remotely out of their homes. A good example of that would be a workplace injury policy um, where you would write, I would add in there that um, they must report injuries that 
take place in home offices as well. And I know that I'm adding a lot of remote work policies to handbooks and telecommuting policies to handbooks that you didn't really see in handbooks several years ago or pre-pandemic. It's so interesting how much things have changed just even in the last 18 months, because I'm sure a lot of businesses haven't looked at their handbooks, <laughs> you know, if they've been in business for, for a long time um, and it's not something that they focus on, they probably haven't looked at it in quite some time. And so now would be a good time to take those things into consideration because the world has just changed so much. But switching back for a minute to the investigations, do you have any set of like best practices or recommendations that you give to businesses? Yeah. So, you know, one thing that I wanted to say as we were talking about policies that goes to that is that when you have also when you have that policy in place and, and this isn't, you know, just the harassment discrimination policy, but also, as Deb had mentioned, rules of conduct policies um, or even performance policies and things of that nature. When you're conducting the investigation, if you have those policies in place, it really helps you narrow the, the scope of the investigation because you're looking at when the investigator comes in, the question is not whether, you know, an employee violated the law. It's whether there was a policy violation that occurred. So if you have those policies in place, then you have something to focus on. You know, so you look at you look at the conduct first and then whether there was a policy violation. And so without that policy in place, that becomes more difficult because the investigator is not there to make, you know, determinations about whether, you know, a law was violated. Which is something um, I don't think some people, I think people get confused about sometimes. Yeah. What, is it, what exactly the investigator's role is. Yeah. And so like if, a, if an employee reports that, you know, employee A, you know, touched employee B inappropriately, the question first is, you know, whether that conduct occurred, but then also whether it violated you know, the harassment and discrimination policy or the rules of conduct policy, but, you, you know, not whether a violation of any law occurred. Um, yeah. So the policies, you know, help guide the investigation in that way, helps the employer and the investigator work together to set the scope. And then once that scope is in place, you can then move forward with the actual investigation. And so in terms of best practices, you know, once you've identified an investigation you know, needs to occur, and you've selected your investigator, then you've determined the scope, then it's time to start, you know, gathering the evidence that you need to review. And that may, like I said before, may include emails and, and documents. Um, it may also um, include, and almost always includes interviews. And so, there's no set of rules in terms of who needs to be interviewed first. Oftentimes it is the complainant, the person who has alleged the conduct, and then that interview guides what happens moving forward. Um, and so sometimes there are various witnesses that need to be interviewed. Always at some point the respondent is interviewed. And there's lots of best practices in terms of how those interviews you know, should occur. One of the most important things is whoever's conducting the interview should build a rapport with the interview, the interviewees. You want to make them comfortable. The goal is to have them share the necessary information with you. You don't want to interrogate them. You want to use more of like a cognitive-based approach so that they're open to sharing the information. Otherwise, you're not going to, you're, it's, the investigation's not going to be thorough if they right. shut down and are, and are afraid to respond to you. And to make sure that you know, you start with broad questions and, and 
and hear their story in their own words and then funnel it into more narrow questions so that you can make sure you get all of the details as well. So there's just, there's a lot, there's a lot of, um, you know, things that take place, you know, throughout and there, there's not a set of rules for it because it depends on the facts and circumstances of any given investigation. But um, it's, it is important that the investigator you know, has the experience conducting interviews and, and identifying who needs to be interviewed and what evidence needs to be reviewed in order for the investigation to be considered thorough. Yeah, and, and also just be, and before even getting to investigation, there's some best practices to keep in mind. Whenever there's a complaint of whether it's harassment, discrimination, or other workplace conduct, management should recognize that as a complaint, even if it's oral, um, they really need to conduct an investigation, even if it's not ever put in, down in writing. Um, they should also always perform an investigation, even if the complaining employee is reluctant for anything to happen in terms of an investigation for, or for the person who allegedly committed misconduct um, to be disciplined in any way. So even if there's reluctance on the part of the complainant, there still is a duty to conduct an investigation. And even if the complainant complains about a misconduct and then leaves the company and is no longer employee, there's still an obligation to move forward with the investigation. I actually um, had somebody ask, I had that happen to a client recently outside of New York, so I wasn't working with him on it, but he did come to me about it. And it was, something that was being investigated after he left. And so, Andrea, I think I asked you about this. I think mm -hmm. so, so they do have an obligation even after the person is gone to do that, right? Yeah, because the, the obligation isn't just for the employees directly involved. It's for right. the organization. You really need to ensure that, you know, um, if, if the conduct is determined to have occurred, that the company takes remedial action. And sometimes that remedial action is more than discipline or termination. It may be um, revising a policy or putting a policy in place. It may be coaching for particular employees or teams. It may be training of some kind. It, there's, there's all sorts of things that um, could be considered remedial action that don't necessarily include that employee who has left the company. And, and even if the employee leaves the company, I mean, it may be that they may file an action against uh, the company relating to that complaint. And so the employer needs to have conducted a prompt, thorough, and impartial investigation as, as evidence um, in, in any future trial relating to that allegation. And juries will often decide on the amount of damages based on how thorough, impartial um, that investi investigation was or what kind of remedial action was taken. And when an investigation is seen by a jury not to have been conducted at all or to have been conducted in a very biased or non-thorough way, then damages um, by juries can, be, can, can really mount up. And there can also even be punitive damages, punishing damages against the company when a jury sees that there was no investigation or that if there was one, it, it really wasn't up to par. Um, so that investigation becomes important whether or not the employee is still with the organization. And I think that's something that companies don't always realize that, you know, there really, uh, there can be significant 
damages that occur if an investigation is not conducted properly. And there are situations um, in Massachusetts, for example, there's the you know, cornerstone case for investigations is uh, the Gulakian case, which was uh, came down in 2016. And in that case, there was an investigation, but the court decided that it was a sham. It was, it was not conducted promptly and thoroughly. And so it was not an adequate investigation. They said that, you know, it was a sham because it, it led to a desired outcome. And in that case, the compensatory damages were not that large. They were, you know, around, I think they were thirty or $35,000, but the punitive damages were hundreds of thousands of dollars. I believe it was around 500000 Yeah. And I think sometimes, you know, either businesses don't want to know or, they just want to pretend it's not happening, but they don't recognize the significance, like something like, like you could be hit with some serious damages if you don't do it the right way, you don't do the right yeah. thing, and it can be serious. Have you generally over the years seen mistakes that companies made? Like, do you see things over and over again, like common mistakes? Yeah, actually, Laura, I mean, that's, you and I have talked about this before. It's one of the biggest reasons why I, you know, shifted my practice more so to the proactive counseling, the workplace investigations and the training and moved away from, you know, focusing uh, mostly on litigation, because when you're lit, as you know, when you're litigating cases, you see the same things occurring over and over again, and not always with the same company. I mean, it's, right. it's the different companies making the same mistakes. And, you know, seeing that play out in litigation gives you that insight um, to be able to identify it earlier and to, you know, really talk with employers early on about ways to avoid you know, that happening and avoid litigation and also to increase employee morale, because in addition to litigation and potential compensatory or punitive damages, if these issues continue to occur in the workplace, it really, it, it hurts employee morale. You know, employees don't feel comfortable in that workplace and they don't feel supported. And so, you know, having those policies in place and ensuring that investigations that are conducted are adequate and, you know, don't lead to a sham is important for, you know, to enable both the companies and the employees to thrive. I, I find that mistakes that I see happening frequently with internal investigations is that they don't uh, really interview many witnesses beyond the complainant and the con accused. And um, there's a reluctance to really um, shed a lot of light on the problem, the workplace, among other um, witnesses. And they don't really want to have to involve other witnesses if they don't need to or discuss um, some allegations in the workplace. Um, there's a reluctance to get other people involved who are not the complainant or the accused. And so then what you get there is you really don't get a full picture of what may have transpired in the workplace. You know, maybe there's a wider systemic problem. Maybe other employees have also experienced some of this misconduct, but they haven't come forward. And that, that doesn't mean it's not a problem. Right. I actually, it could be uh, a worse problem and it's really under the surface and people aren't talking about it. And, you know, it's important for the employer to find out how broad this problem is so that they can do something about it. And that that's good for business. I mean, it's good for morale. And when, when morale is high, then employees stay 
with employers. Employee retention is better. And, uh, you know, you're less apt to get litigation when employees see that the employer has conducted a thorough and broad investigation that was impartial and that real action was taken, then they're more apt to experience higher morale in the workplace and better employee retention and less litigation. Another issue that I often see come up is when employers, and, and this is natural in, in, in some ways, they, they want to you know, control the process. And so they you know, predetermine what who they think the witnesses are and really at the end of the day that's that's up to the investigator to determine because the investigator determines that as the interviews go on you know from what the what the complainant has to say and who observed the interactions at issue or the conduct at issue um and it's really it's it's not something that can be predetermined by the employer and i know that's something that's really hard sometimes for employers to sort of like let go a little bit and, and let the investigator, you know, control that process. But if they don't and, and they try to predetermine, you know, what documents and, and what witnesses will be considered, then it can lead to a decision that an investigation is a sham. Um, and also in some instances, it can destroy the privilege between the attorney and the, the client you know, because it's really, it's not up to the employment attorney or the employer to control that process. It's, it's the investigator's role. It really is such an important topic. And I feel like, you know, obviously it's not something that um, is, is a fun topic <laughs> for many business owners, but it's so important for them to understand, you know, that they should have their policies in place. And if they do, God forbid, have an employee that makes a claim like this, that, you know, they refer to their policies and they go to the right people and if necessary, hire an outside investigator. So I appreciate uh, you both coming on today to talk about this because I do really think that it's an important topic. You guys are very knowledgeable. You shared some great information today. So I want people to be able to find you if they want to check you out on social media or go to your website. Andrea, you want to tell people where they can find you? Sure. Our website is uh, www.cohen kramerlaw.com you can also find us on linkedin as well we have a page on there and deb and i also have um, personal pages on linkedin so we will put all of your contact information in our show notes just in case somebody's driving and listening to it and they can't write it down they can just you know click into the show notes and find all of your information there it was great having you on today i really appreciate it uh, thank you for spending time with us on the podcast today and we'll talk to you on the next episode Thanks so much for listening to the Be the CEO of Your Life and Business podcast. If you have not already done so, be sure to leave us a rating and review so that we can reach even more businesswomen just like you. We will see you again next Monday for a brand new episode.